This week's episode of the Landscape Photography Podcast is brought to you by you, because you are awesome and ads suck. This week, we're doing a Q&A session and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, this is Nick Page and thank you guys for listening this week. This week, we're going to be taking questions from the Facebook group as well as Instagram. If you don't follow me on Instagram, you can find me just do a search for Nick Page Photography. And if you're not a member of the Facebook group, you should be because that's where we all talk with each other, share work, get feedback on our work and get more ideas for this show. Before I jump in, I want to let you know that I have launched, gosh, I guess four workshops now. I have four workshops and two of them have already sold out. My Faroe Islands adventure with Mass Peter Iverson. I was really excited about that. It appears that other people were too because it's sold out in only three hours of pre-sale. In addition to that, my Wildflowers and Waterfalls tour, that one is already sold out. But I do have spots left on my two Palouse tours as well as my Photographing Paradise, which is my favorite workshop of the year. That's where we go to Kauai. We spend a week in flip-flops, sipping Mai Tais, and photographing some of the most beautiful seascapes that I've ever seen. So if you're interested in any of that, you can find my workshops and tutorials always over at nickpagephotography.com. Okay, with that, let's jump into this week's episode. It's a Q&A episode where we answer your questions. First question is about Wacom tablets. Mark says he just got his first Wacom tablet and he's curious about what custom functions that I use when I'm editing. So I actually don't use hardly any. I leave the wheel set to scroll rather than zoom and then I do everything else with hotkeys with my left hand on the keyboard. I've bought a really small wireless keyboard that is really easy to set next to my Wacom tablet and I leave my right hand on the tablet, my left hand over on the keyboard. That way I can quickly do shortcuts with my left hand. Let's say that I want to zoom in on my photo. I can hold control and space bar and then click and drag right or left with my stylus and that's going to zoom in or out on the image. I've found that it's much faster to memorize keyboard shortcuts, leave the left hand over on the keyboard and I don't really use the custom buttons too much over on the Wacom tablet, but that's just me. And I know that there's many YouTube videos giving suggestions on how to set it up uh, for editing in Lightroom and in Photoshop. Next question is, now that you've had time with the Sony, are there any regrets? Also, besides dynamic range, what are the big advantages that you see? And what are some of the things that you wish that it had compared to the 5D Mark IV? So yes, I'm shooting Sony. I'm probably in week three now, and I definitely do not regret it. The Sony, if nothing else, other than image quality, if nothing else, it's just more fun to shoot with. It's a slightly smaller camera and I love electronic viewfinders. Being able to look through the screen and see exactly how my photo is going to look is really, really cool. Things that I maybe miss about the 5D Mark IV, definitely the touchscreen functionality. The Canon 5D Mark IV implemented touchscreen technology much better than Sony has so far. The ability to touch to focus and take your photo or to touch while you, 
or use the touch screen when you're navigating through menus. That makes things so much faster. Also, I miss just the terminology used by Canon. I guess I heard an interesting story that Canon actually copyrighted some of the terms that they used when they made their first camera menu system. And for that reason, Nikon and Sony and all other camera systems that come after that, they actually can't use the same terminology because they'll get sued, which is kind of crazy, but I guess I can understand it. So I do miss some of the, you know, just common sense terminology like highlight alert. That's what I wish it was called rather than zebras, things like that. But there's been a lot said about Sony menu systems and how most people don't care for them and how hard to navigate they are. And because there's a my menu system and then Sony a7R3, you just put all of the features that you use the most in that my menu and then you never have to dig through the menu again. That's by far the easiest way to do it. I also love all the customizable buttons on the Sony a7R3. I think there's like eight customizable buttons and you can quickly and easily get to everything that you're looking for. I just love shooting with the Sony a7R3 and that's not even talking about image quality. The image quality blows away my Canon in my opinion. So definitely no regrets. George asks, what do you do when the light is not good? So it depends on whether we're talking about if I'm on a photo trip or if I'm at home. If I'm at home and the light isn't good, I typically golf or I do something else to make myself busy or useful. I plan that next trip. But if I'm on a photo trip and the light isn't good, I'm still attempting to make use of the time. So there's several different ways that you can make yourself useful when the light is not good. First of all, you can even when the light is not good, there's always something that you can shoot. Sometimes you can go into a shady foresty area and you can find images there or you can stay up and do night photography when the if it's a clear night. There's typically always something that you can shoot. It all just kind of depends on the type of light that you have that day. But if the light is just not working, let's say that this is it's a flat overcast day and the only types of scenes that are available to you are those big wide angle shots. So you leave your camera back at the hotel or wherever and you just go scout and you try to find figure out and find all the different possibilities for compositions. And you do that when the light's bad. That way, when the light is good, you know exactly where to go and you have a game plan. So you either scout or you make do with what light you do have. Stanley asks, looking back over the last year, in what areas of photography do I believe I've improved, stayed the same, or regressed? This is interesting. I know that I have regressed in several parts of my photography. I am no longer great at portrait photography. I, I'm great at lighting. I can light a portrait really well and I love doing flash photography and you know creating really dramatic portraits but I have always been less than amazing at posing people that's just not my my strong suit it's not my interest and as it's became less of an interest to me I've gotten worse and worse at it and I really notice when I go to do portraits I just don't take the time to properly pose people so I've seen myself really regress in my portraits as far as, you know, couples and weddings and stuff like that. I think I probably stayed the same with sports and stuff like that because it's a little bit like riding a bike. Once you have that, once you have the ability to uh, kind of see where a, a particular play is going or to be in the right place, you kind of always have that. And it comes back pretty fast. 
but I definitely feel like I have improved with landscape photography. And I mean, if you look at the types of photography I'm doing, I'm improving at what I'm doing the most of, and I'm getting worse at the things that I'm doing the least of. And that, that just kind of makes sense, right? Whatever you're practicing, whatever you're doing, that's what you're going to get better at. And for me, I'm getting better at landscape photography, but getting much worse at weddings. Greg asks, there are a lot of landscape photographers out there and there are a lot of great workshop leaders out there, but the two are not completely congruent. For those that are looking for a workshop and when Nick's workshops are all filled, how does one figure out which opportunity and leader is the best fit? This is a great question. And it's it's one that I've wanted to broach on the show for a while, but I didn't I haven't been able to work it into a conversation. There is this growing number of people leading workshops out there. Pretty much every Instagrammer with a large following is leading workshops now. Every YouTube personality is starting to lead workshops out there now. And it's not always that they have great teaching abilities or that their photography is particularly amazing. A lot of times it's just that they have the marketing base to be able to market to people and sell out workshops. Just because they can, they are. People looking for workshops really need to keep that stuff in mind. There are several things that you need to look for in a workshop instructor to make sure that you're going to have a good experience. First of all, you need to make sure that the photographer is creating work that you are interested in creating yourself. So that's that's step one. But step two is to try to make sure that that person is also going to be able to and want to teach that to you. Not all photographers are great teachers. And not all photographers are really interested in sharing all of their tips, tricks, and secrets. The ones that are will typically have lots of tutorials or, or places on the internet where you can see that the, see their teaching style in action, whether it's through some kind of video tutorial or speaking engagements, stuff like that. People that teach, they teach in multiple ways. And most workshop instructors will have places on the internet where you can kind of Facebook stock them or YouTube stock them or whatever, stock them and, and do a little bit of research on them, make sure that you like their teaching style. The next thing is you can have a really great teacher, but if they are somebody that you really don't want to spend a lot of time with, you're not going to enjoy your experience with them. So make sure the personality matches. If you're a very serious, stoic type photographer that really wants to take it serious, maybe you shouldn't go with somebody that is super lighthearted and cracking jokes all the time and vice versa. If you're somebody that's really lighthearted and you want to hang out with someone that's really lighthearted, you probably don't want to go with the really dry PhD workshop instructor. So research not only their photography, but try to research examples of their teaching style and examples of their personality because those three things are going to matter a lot. Paul asks, is it possible to make a living as a landscape photographer without supplementing income, selling workshops, tutorials, YouTube, podcasts, and revenue? Just living and breathing, making photographs as art. It's hard, but that money is going to have to come from somewhere. Obviously, my business plan involves teaching. So selling workshops, selling tutorials, because that's what I really enjoy and what I love doing. This podcast doesn't bring in revenue. YouTube doesn't really bring in revenue, but those two things, they help me get the word out about workshops and, 
And it's another vehicle for me to be able to talk and teach and just nerd out with people that have a similar interest set. But your money is going to have to come from somewhere. And typically for most landscape photographers, it's either going to come from education or doing it. It sounds like you are the type of person that wants to actually do it. And for that reason, you need to put your focus towards licensing photos and prints. Licensing photos is all about networking. You need to find those people that are buying images and network with as many of them as possible. And you might be a candidate for having some kind of representative or agent to kind of put your name out there and to submit your work to places that are buying images for license or for magazines, for ads, as well as putting your work in galleries. One of my goals for this year is to not only print more, but to find places to hang those prints and to try to get my work into a gallery somewhere. And that can be a great revenue stream once you're able to get enough images in enough galleries. And it's, it's an uphill climb for sure, but it's something that if you don't want to teach, you have to figure out. Kyle asks, Mac or PC and preferred editing program for photos than for videos. So I'm a PC guy. This year I built a custom computer through Puget Systems. They're a company out of the Seattle, Washington area that builds custom built computers for media and they fully test it afterwards. It comes with all kinds of customer support. And for people like me that don't have the time or the knowledge to build their own, it's a great solution. I think I ended up spending about 6000 somewhere in that, that range, $6,000. And my current workstation that I'm working on right now has an 8-core i9 processor, 64 gigs of RAM, a video card with 11 gigs of built-in RAM, four internal hard drives, and just all of the connectivity that you could want. It is an absolute beast. I built it with the idea of trying to spec it out almost to the level of the new iMacs, only for a fraction of the price. So I've always been a PC guy for that reason. You can build them and you can build them much more affordably and much more powerfully than a Mac without that Mac price tag. I edit in Lightroom and Photoshop, mostly Photoshop. I do all of my cataloging and then basic raw adjustments in Lightroom, then round trip over into Photoshop, do the, the heavy lifting over in Photoshop, and then I save it and I catalog it inside of Lightroom. For videos, I always use Premiere Pro, and because I have a podcast, I also use Adobe Audition. So I'm pretty much Adobe, 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 because it makes sense for me because I'm using so many different types of programs from Adobe that 50 bucks a month, it's a, it's a decent deal. Any plans for future workshops in Greenland, Patagonia, or Norway? Yes and no, no. I think that Norway and Patagonia are so heavily trafficked right now. That's where every single photographer seems to go that I don't feel like people need me to go there too. I don't know that I could go there and do anything different than what people are already doing. Greenland, however, Greenland calls to me. Greenland is just so beautiful and rugged and, and different. And I know that there are some workshops going there for sure, but not nearly as many as, say, Patagonia or Norway. I really want to try to avoid just being, being part of the herd of photographers going from, you know, the one spot to another to another. 
Patagonia and Norway, it's part of that photographer migration that happens every year. And I'm going to try to avoid that. It's painful because I really want to go to Patagonia. I might go and just shoot it by myself once, but I don't want to be just another photography group down in the area with, you know, 30 other ones. And that's kind of how Patagonia is looking right now. Steven asks, how often do I go out and have no luck? And does it ever get to me? Yes, it absolutely gets to me. It doesn't get to me as much as it used to. I used to like suffer from severe depression if I got just totally skunked on a trip. Nowadays, I'm, I'm more accepting of the fact that I'm just not going to get great photos every time I go out and that has to be okay. I would say that when I go out, if I can get one decent photo per day, I'll be happy. And it doesn't always have to be the big iconic epic landscape. In fact, oftentimes it's not because it takes special conditions for that to even line up. A lot of times for me, it's, you know, some abstract picture of a tree or something, and that can make the day feel like it wasn't a total waste. But I still get that depression that can kind of kick in. If you totally get skunk, you start asking yourself, man, are you really a photographer? I thought you were nick page nick page should come away with a photo and i put a lot of pressure on myself sometimes and it makes it difficult but i realize that you're not always going to get good photos it's just hard when you don't ed asks lessons learned in traveling abroad to shoot landscapes in other words what do you know now that you've done many international trips to many locations that you did not know when you first went abroad that's an interesting question thing that I know now is how annoying tourists are. <laughs> it seems like I spend the majority of my time when I travel abroad trying to avoid tourists and trying to go where the tourists are not. One of the things that that's allowed me to do is to explore places that are not just part of the typical area. The first time you go to a location, you're always going to the same spot that everybody else is going to. And you guys probably know this about me. That hurts me just a little bit on the inside. I want to be different somehow. I want to set myself apart somehow and to feel like I'm just part of the herd. It just hurts deep on the inside somewhere. And so by trying to avoid those tourists, a lot of times I'm able to explore places that I wouldn't have explored before. The other thing is, is to go there when people, other people are not going there. That allows you to be there during different conditions and, and, I've also learned the importance of shooting sunrises when you're traveling to destinations, shooting sunrises can eliminate probably 80% of the people. The only other people that you're going to be contending with typically are going to be those early risers and the other photographers. And there's typically far fewer photographers than there are other types of tourists. So shooting sunrises becomes incredibly important. But I think mostly the, the thing that I get the more that I travel is just the importance of being respectful. It's easier for me to put myself in the mindset of the person that lives in the area now and to think about what it must be like for these people, let's say in Iceland, it can remember a time before all these tourists and now they see all of these just, you know, busloads and busloads of tourists going through what used to be this untouched land and screwing it up. I don't want to be more of that problem. I want to be as respectful as I can and respect the fact that there are people that live in these places. This is not just candy land for photographers. It's also somewhere where someone lives. 
And it's a little bit easier for me to put myself in the shoes of the people that actually live there, especially now that I'm friends with several of them. Jack asks, with the way technology is rapidly evolving, how do you think it's going to impact professional photography as a profession in the future? That's another good question. Cameras are getting so much better. I really notice it when I bust out my iPhone and I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe that I can take this photo with my phone. That's crazy to me. Right now, there are more photographers than there ever have been ever in history. And for that reason, photography is worth less than it used to be because there are just so many more people doing it. The more people that there are doing it, the more really good photographers there's going to be, the more really good photographers there's going to be, the less valuable the really great photography is going to be. The more of something that there is, the less valuable it becomes. But there's always going to be a need for professional photography. I think it's just going to be a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder to make ends meet as a photographer. I think that the average professional photographer that's producing good work, but not like mind blowing work, I think that they are going to be the ones that feel the pinch the most because the gap between that pretty good professional photographer and the really good enthusiastic amateur with a nice camera, that gap is going to close. And the difference is going to be very difficult for most people to even see. There's always going to be those photographers that are miles ahead of everyone else. I don't think they're going to feel the pinch as much, but who is going to feel the difference and who is going to be having a harder time paying all of their bills are going to be those photographers that are good, but not amazing. Those photographers are going to struggle. But in the end, all of this is just more competition and competition is a good thing. It's going to make photographers try harder. Competition breeds higher quality. I think that you can expect even better photography from the high-end professionals in the future as a result. Last question for today. Randy asks, how much to shave the beard? You guys don't have enough money to make Nick Page shave the beard. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you next time. Make sure that you go over to the Facebook group and jump in on the conversation there if you're interested in asking some of these questions for future Q&A episodes. And remember, if you're interested in any of the workshops, you can find that stuff over at nickpagephotography.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you.